Well, I would invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. It's page 785 in the church Bibles, which is provided for you in the seat beneath or in front of you. You can take one if you like. I'm going to read just And while you're turning there. It's hard for me not to have a lot of great, wonderful memories of Easter um, growing up in the life of God's church. And I'm sure many of you have the same. It's just a mercy that year by year, because of God's goodness, we're allowed to do what we're doing now. And many of us will leave here and we'll have nice times with friends and family. And I, um, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to God for that. And I bet you are too. And so I just want to make that known publicly. Verse 24, Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And if you would, just listen to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that is preached to you. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. If you would, please, let's bow together and let's seek the help that we need from God. God and Father, on a morning like this, will you please remind us the truth that all men are like grass and all our glory, Father, is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And God, with your enabling me, may that be the word that is preached to us this morning. For your glory and for the good of the people here, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me begin by asking you a question, which is actually the first question of, oops, <laughs> of the West... Westminster Confession, no, the new, the new City Catechism that we read of 
this morning. And this is the question. What is your only hope in life and in death? And I want you to think about that for a moment. What is your only hope in life and in death? So I wonder if you have a a mechanism for both explaining your life, for dealing with your life, understanding the inevitability of your death, and dealing with that as well. What is your only hope in life and in death? Now, that is a question maybe some of us have never honestly considered. So you've kind of cycled through your life by getting up and going to work or going to school, then home, and then you do some stuff, and then the weekend comes and you enjoy that, and then Monday morning rises and you hit repeat and you do the same thing over again. Or you're retired and you're done with working and your life is on some level a cruise control and you've kind of settled into that notion. However, the question, what is your only hope in life and in death, is an awfully important question. It's awfully important in light of our life that we live before God. It's awfully important in light of our death, after which the Bible says that we'll stand before God. Concerning life, have you ever thought through these things? Have you ever asked yourself the question, you know, why, in, why in the world am I alive? I mean, why, why am I here? And since I'm here, what am I to be while I'm here? I mean, we, we can't be going through this life for nothing, right? And it, and it can't just be about either work or play or, or um, maybe like tourism. It, and then have you ever asked yourself the question, am I really the master of my fate and the, and the captain of my ship? Because, you know, I don't really feel that way sometimes. Life comes at me full tilt and sometimes it's overwhelming, Okay, that's life. And then what about death? It's coming for everyone in this room sooner or later. If you pay attention to culture, oftentimes death is considered, if you would, the unmentionable. However, death, although for some is unmentionable, it remains for all of us here inescapable. The one sure fact of life is that one day, with or without warning, quietly or painfully, our life is going to stop. So then when a question comes across our radar, what is our only hope in life and in death? My guess is that although you may have never honestly thought about how you would answer that question up till now, I'm guessing that since you're here and you've been asked the question, you would want to try to answer the question in some way. I mean, it's a, it's a sensible question. So this is what I can tell you. And I can tell you this with all the love in my heart. Christianity claims not to have a answer to that question, but it claims to have the answer to that question. And the answer isn't in an ethic, and the answer isn't in just, you know, raw morality. The answer is a person. A person. Christianity has always held that the Jesus Christ of the Scriptures, not of culture, but the Jesus Christ of the Scriptures, is alive. And He is our only hope in life and in death. And this is who He is. This is a classical Christian statement on who Jesus is. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes everything new. Truly God, he became truly man. 
two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and in judgment. For us, he kept the law. He atoned for sin, satisfied God's wrath on sin. He took all our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He is building his church. He is interceding for us. And he reigns over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. And you see, to know him that way, we find in this knowledge a way through life and a way through death and a way past death and all that will come after, which gives hope. And that is much of the Easter story. And loved ones, in 19 years of public ministry, I am more convinced than ever that Jesus Christ is alive and he's going to return and we have the most beautiful story to tell in his resurrection. A story which is rooted in truth, it's verifiable, and it's rooted in consequence. And yet, it's a story that gets mangled up at times by many, many people. So, so sometimes people tell our story with a kind of like political edge to it. And that isn't there. And sometimes people tell the story with a kind of like stuffy uh, moral majority high ground. And that isn't there. And sometimes, tell it, uh, sometimes people tell it with a kind of, okay, Jesus is alive and he can juice your life up because you look like your life needs to be juiced up and he can help you win at everything. So what do you want to win at? You want to win at life? He can do that. You want to win at business? He can do that. Kids, do you want to win at sports? Jesus can help you. I mean, don't you want to win at everything? By golly, you deserve to win at everything. Jesus can make you win everything. And they mess the story up. And they lead people astray. Because that is a lie. And it isn't helpful. Even though a lot of those stories sell pretty well these days. You see, this is what they're missing in all those versions of the story. What they're missing is that the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is a story about how God saves sinners from his judgment, from his wrath on their sin through his son alone. And the story doesn't hang on its own. And this is important. Because it hangs on historical, verifiable events, which are, if you would, links to a chain which involved real people and involved real places in a real time with real events that followed. And this is important because when you read your Bible, and I hope that you all will be encouraged to read your Bible more than ever before after we're done. But when you read your, your Bible, what you're going to see is every time in the New Testament, the resurrection story, when it comes up, instead of just immediately going right to the story of Jesus being alive, both Jesus and Paul and John and Peter and others, they go back, way back, and they call up some history. And they link all these historical events together. They line each up one in sequence, if you like. They connect all the dots so that people then... Thinking this story through can check its veracity and can decide rationally and not simply emotionally. Let me just give you an example. After his resurrection, 
Christ was walking on the Emmaus Road. This is Luke 24. Instead of just immediately going to the disciples and saying, Hey guys, it's me. The first thing he does is he opens up his Bible. He gives them a thorough Old Testament lesson. He lines up all those events in the Old Testament. He, he tells them how every one of those events concern him. And then when they break bread, he reveals himself as the risen Christ. Stephen, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first Christian martyr, the first one to die for the faith in that context in the book of Acts. He goes through the same historical progression and as he's defending himself, he begins his defense all the way back to Abraham and says, okay guys, this is why Christ is alive and he begins the story with Abraham. And of course, you see this if your Bible's open, verse 24 the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul, he does the same thing and he goes all the way back, verse 24, to creation. Each story then, not separate entities, but one story linked together which culminates in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and will consummate when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Now, now I want you to think with me. Many of us may be so used to the commercialization of Christianity that it might be hard for us to grab onto this. For example, so some say, well, you know, just give me the story how something really bad happened to somebody and God just came down and he turned the whole thing around and that's my Easter hope. So this is what he does. He takes a bad situation and he always makes it good and there's lights and there's angels and there's people going, oh, this is wonderful. This is a miracle. So what they do is if, if you're feeling it, then you can believe it. So we whittle down Jesus to that poor baby in a manger and that poor man on the cross and those terrible people who did that. Boy, he showed them, didn't he? But this is what we need to know. Jesus is not simply looking for some emotional surge, nor is he only looking for some emotional response. Right? So that we feel good about feeling bad for Jesus. There's a scene in Luke's gospel that I really like. Jesus is walking down the Via Della Rosa. He's on his way to his crucifixion. He's all mangled up. He's beaten to a bloody pulp. And some ladies who were following were weeping for Jesus. And this is what he says to them. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And weep for your children. Now, can you imagine the audacity of Jesus to say that? His flesh is hanging off his back, right? His, his face is swollen. He looks like a monster, and he tells them, enough with the tears. Go cry for yourself. That's how pastors get fired. <laughs> Was Jesus being cruel? No. Jesus is not looking for some emotional surge, nor is he looking for some emotional response, but a rational decision, a coherent decision. Loved ones, a Savior which is prepared to say, I am truth alone, demands a response which has been thought through based on evidence which is verifiable and historical and, yes, tested. And you see, this is what the gospel did, does. These gospel narratives is linking together all these, if you would, meta-narratives, all these small stories with the final piece in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it would mean for everyone who's ever lived. 
And of course, you can see this in your Bible. If it's open, Paul begins his talk, not with the resurrection. Now, he's talking to a bunch of, of the intelligentsia of his day. And none of them are Christians. And so he's trying to convert. He's working towards a conversion, much like I am, to be honest with you. And so the first thing he does is he talks about creation, which we know is a hotbed in public debate these days. So essentially, the Bible says, listen, skeptics are welcome. You're very welcome. The Bible will gladly hold up to your test. Cynics, well, that's another story. But skeptics, you're welcome. So verse 24, this is what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth. And so what he's saying is this, and we just have three points. Number one, God is the creator of humanity. God is the creator of humanity. And so that's where he begins. He begins, if you would, at the beginning. In essential humanity, what it means to be human, God is the author. And this is what it means. It means you and I are not an accident. Verse 26, it means the sequence of our life was not an accident. The place of our birth, the flow of life, not an accident. We were put here with a purpose from the mind of God. What is the purpose? Verse 27, God did this so that men and women would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Now, I want you to see this, this thoughtful flow. God is the designer, and he brought us into existence. And every reality that we've been in contact with, God is the one doing it to lead us to this moment so that we would, verse 27, seek him and reach out to him and find him. So God has brought us into existence, and he helps us understand what it means to be human, which means, frankly, and this is important, because God created us, it means every one of us in this room has a spark of divinity in us. Every one of us. Which means there are no ordinary people. One of the things we know for sure, at least in our context, in our world, is that people have trouble getting along. And that kind of hostility has marked all of human history. The one thing humans do well is they do not get along. Listen to C.S. Lewis on being made in the image of God. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind. In fact, it is the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. You understand what he's saying. He's saying that this is what God's word says. Every one of us in this room, everyone who's ever been created bears in them the image of God. And that has to mean something has to mean something. And one of the things it means is that Jesus, when he walked this earth, he broke down all the walls of separation and superiority. I mean, even if you just read partially, you know that the one thing that people are struggling with is that they want a voice in this world. They want to be known, no matter what they're dealing with, they want to be known as someone and something. And in the Bible, they find that. They are made, whoever they are, they are made in the image of God. 
So we know what the skeptic will say. We'll say, well, listen, we do not need God to explain our creation because it goes beyond the natural process of life and, and death. It goes beyond, if you would, this is what they say, scientific explanation. And yet, if you read widely what scientists say, and I spent a lot of time in that realm over the past few weeks, in their own circles, there is a common thread which reveals that there is a fundamental disagreement with their own explanations of how we became us. Let me give you an example. David Berlinski, he's not a Christian. He's a dedicated skeptic. Yet when the atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, he wrote the book, The God Delusion, around 2006, David responded with his own book called The Devil's Delusion. And this is what he wrote. Has anyone provided proof of God's in existence, not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it is not religious thought? Close enough. <laughs> Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the, 20, uh, the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. Now listen, that is a skeptic. That's not a Christian. So, so think with me. Those in the scientific community which deny the resurrection... They deny it because it's supernatural occurrence and it occurred outside the normal routines of life. And this is what they say. They say the scientific method cannot be applied to it. The scientific method is you can't observe it, so then you can't examine it, so you can't make a good judgment on it. So they deny the resurrection. Of course, and to deny the resurrection, they have to deny that God is the author of human existence for the same reason. Okay, if you're with me, this is where they end up. Let me just give you one of many examples. This is Sir Frederick Hoyle. He's a decorated astronomer. He's not a Christian. Listen to what he says. And calculating the odds that all the proteins necessary for life might form in one place in random events is a, ch is a one chance in 10 to the 40th thousand power possibility. So it's one chance followed by 10 to the 40,000 40, power, 10 times itself, 40,000 times. Now that's a skeptic. So what he's saying is, is that mathematically uh, evolution is impossible. He goes on. Since there are only 10 to the power of 80 atoms in the entire known universe, we conclude that it is an outrageously small probability which we cannot face. Okay? Life could not have originated here on earth. It is mathematically impossible. Biological evolution cannot be explained by any earthbound theory. We need something outside the earth to create it. Okay, verse 24. That's the first line of Paul. That the, that the God who made the world and everything in it is the, is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. So this is what these guys are saying. There is no way on earth for something on earth 
could start human life. So instead of bowing to the God of the Bible, this is their theory. You ready? It's almost unbelievable. And this is not like low street theory. This has come from the high minds. It's called the panspermia theory. Have you heard of this? The panspermia theory. And this is a theory that spores were brought from another planet to seed on the earth and make life happen, which eventually made you and I happen. So you're not made in the image of God. You're like spores from another planet. Do you like that? I don't either, honey. I don't either. Number one, God is the creator of humanity. Creation is a miracle from God. Second point, God is the rescuer of humanity. He has to be. This is the story of humanity. This is the one clear message of the Bible. We are broken people. Within the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, there is already open rebellion. By the fourth chapter of the Bible, there's, there is a, a murder. You read the rest of Genesis, and it sounds like an episode of Jerry Springer. There's all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Well, why is that the case? Because we are fallen people. And we are each turned in upon ourselves in a thousand different ways that it becomes hard to see that we're fallen. And so we're so blind to this and blind to the despicable nature of sin that it's hard for us to get this. Here's my suggestion. Read your newspaper. Read your online news services. <laughs> read other people's social media posts. <laughs> and just look in the mirror. Fair enough. I mean, a few weeks ago, that whatever happened in Georgia on that live feed and Facebook, what is that? I mean, what is that? Tragedy, evil, rebellion, everywhere, every day. And it isn't getting better. So people need to be lied, or delivered, if you would, from the lie that says, you know, we, we can live well and we can push God out to the side. Can't do that. Isn't this true? We would go to God only to fix things in our life. We would go to God only because we are afraid of things in our life. We would go to God only because we do not like things in our life. So we need a new job, a new, a new place, a new adventure, whatever. We would go to God only because we want Him to, to grow some things in our life. So our wallets, our status, uh, athletics, whatever it is. We would go to God only because we don't want our children to ruin their lives. Or our lives as well. Now loved ones, listen. All of that on its own is not Christian. That is pagan. A God who indulges us and makes no uh, demands of us, that is classical paganism. A God who we use as we see fit, that is classical paganism. The God of the Bible, the message of the Bible is we go to God first because of our sin. That's Christian. The other stuff, it may come or it may not come. But we go to God first because we have no answer to our sin. So we would say to God, look, you give me the gifts, the fan, the family, the friends, the falling in love, safety, but nothing bad at all. Don't want any of that. But I'll run my life. And it's not going to be your will be done. It'll be my will that will be done. And that is a reflection of our brokenness because we do not trust God's way. 
Now, a long time ago, my son broke his arm. I think he was probably like eight or nine. The poor fellow, the first thing he said when he broke his arm is, and his arm is just like, Ugh. he said, am I going to die? I said, no, you're not going to die. Stop acting like your father. And then, and, then, and then he just was like, with his arm. And I said, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm trying to move my arm. I said, you can't move your arm because it's broken. It's the same thing with our souls. It's broken. And we can will all we want and try as hard as we might, but we can't rescue ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We need God to do a miracle. I mean, just like at creation, yeah. So we need a redeemer to do something that we can't do for ourselves, yeah. So in creation and redemption, we have that miracle from God that we need. And that's the connection. That's what Paul is trying to drive home here and in 1 Corinthians 15. So the Bible says that God is the one who removes the veil from our eyes so that we can see his son and believe on his son and no longer be stuck in unbelief. God is the one who makes dead sinners alive saints. God is the one who brings them into his church and the body of Jesus Christ. And God is the one who does that miracle. And part of the miracle, if your Bible is open, verse 26, is God working. He puts people in exact places, in exact times, and where they should live. It's that specific. I mean, those of you that are Christians, don't we know how God lined up that person to come across that path of ours so that we could hear about Jesus and then God could do what none of us could do and save us. Verse 27, right? So that people would seek him and reach out to him. He's not far. God did this. And I came to Christ when I was seven years old. I I still remember everything that happens. I know how I was rescued. I never doubted any of this. Haven't doubted to this day. Uh, The new hungers that God gave, the new loves that God gave, the new passions that he gave, the new awareness of my brokenness that God gave. God did all of that. And you see, until we genuinely understand that it really does take God himself to deal with the evil in us, then moments like this, they'll just be nice. But they won't be needed. We don't understand sin, which means it's hard for us to understand that it's going to take a miracle of God to transform our life. God is the creator of humanity. God is the rescuer, the redeemer of humanity. And and Paul, you can't have one without the other. Final point. God is the deliverer from death for humanity. And of course, God does this by raising Jesus from the dead and showing us that this is his specialty. Now, it's really important that you understand this. Every human, past their death, will continue. So we'll die, and then we're going to wake up somewhere. So when the Bible speaks of death in the context of the gospel, it means this. If we go into eternity without Christ, we will live forever, but we're going to be separated from God. We'll be eternally punished for our rebellion and refusal to acknowledge our need of the Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this the wrath of God, which will be fastened upon us. And Jesus said, this is the fire that is never, ever quenched. However, those in Christ have nothing to fear 
and they have everything to enjoy forever. So this idea of a bodily resurrection on some future day hangs on not only creation, not only on redemption, but on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just told you some big stuff. I know it might sound harsh, but this is what Jesus said. So let me ask you this question. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Because that's where Christianity hinges on. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Now, Christianity has always had arguments which are given for the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just say it like this. It begins with the Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts, said, with many convincing proofs that he was alive, Jesus appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. In fact, the, the apostles were accused of stealing the body of Jesus because there was no body in his tomb. And so from then all the way till now, there have been attacks on the claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. Therefore, to counter those claims to the resurrection, some of the claims, right, okay, he did not rise from the dead because his body was stolen or he really didn't die or the latest one is a dog ate the body of Jesus. That's why there's no body. It happened all the time in Palestine. But the Christian claim is, is so rational. Here it is. First, Jesus really did die. The Romans knew how to kill a person. Crucifixion was horrible and it was 100% lethal. Second, this is the one I like the best. The tomb was empty. So soon the tomb was empty that the early Christians, they don't even know where the actual tomb was because they didn't care about the tomb because Jesus was raised from the dead. So you know how we make memorials of things? There's no memorial for the tomb of Jesus Christ. Now there's people in, in Israel trying to sell off a certain places. This is where we're pretty sure that he you know, was risen from the dead, but they do that for tourists. So there's no real memorial that says, okay, this is where it happened. And so all his enemies, enemies would have needed to do was say, here's the body. Now guys, disciples, you need to zip it. But they could never produce a body. Third, his disciples so believed that Jesus was resurrected that they were willing to die for him. The oldest church in India is called the Mortoma Church. It's named after the disciple of Jesus Christ, one of the original 12, Thomas. Thomas preached Christ in India. Secondary sources, extra-biblical sources says Thomas was there for a while preaching Christ. This is the same Thomas who said that he wouldn't believe that Jesus is alive until he saw and felt and touched the risen Jesus. And this is the eyewitness account of Thomas. He saw Jesus. He felt Jesus. He touched the risen Christ. And this is what he said. He said, Kyriosmu theosmu, my Lord and my God. So let me ask you this. Why would Thomas die as a martyr in India if he didn't seal, uh, see and feel and touch the risen Jesus Christ. And by the way, 11 of the 12 disciples, they all died alone as well, martyred for Christ. So you say, well, gosh, there's martyrs all the time in Islam. But yeah, there's a huge difference, and this is what it is. Those martyrs die for themselves. They die for some extra benefit on whatever uh, is the other side of their death. These men died for Jesus these men died because Jesus Christ was alive and they were ready to proclaim it and, of course, die for it. Fourth, they changed their belief system. 
You see, the early Christians were Jewish. So instead of worshiping on the last day, they moved their worship to the first day of the week. We know it as Sunday, the Lord's Day, Resurrected Day. And they began to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is what? Well, the Lord's Supper is a picture of the death of Christ, but it's also a picture of the resurrection of Christ until he comes, which means he's alive and he's coming back. And think about baptism. Baptism symbolizes the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So when I do a baptism, when I put the people in the water, that symbolizes the death. I don't keep them down there. (laughs) I bring them up to symbolize that Jesus Christ is alive. So you may not know this, but all these theories of no resurrection, you know, he didn't die, a dog ate him, they hid their bodies, they are not held by the majority of the New Testament uh, scholars. And some of those scholars aren't even Christians because they look at the evidence, they think, and because it's so rational, the majority of New Testament scholars, again, not even the ones that, that are not Christian, they agree that these things are true. The, ones, the bottom line then is that Jesus Christ is alive. So that makes it personal. Because if there's no resurrection, then Christianity is a complete waste of time. Right? All this stuff is like niceties and nothing more. There's no forgiveness of sins. And essentially, me as a middle-aged man, I have wasted my entire life. And kind of done something else. But if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, then the hundreds of millions of people who have trusted in him, they have eternal life. Creation. It took a miracle of God for this world to be created and for you and I to be created. Redemption. It took a miracle from God in the gospel. Grace coming down to save. Resurrection. It took a miracle of God to raise Jesus Christ who was really, really dead to be alive. And so for 2,000 years, the one main and plain message of Christianity is what? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Now I began the talk asking the question, what is your only hope in life and in death? And here is the Christian answer. My only hope in life and in death is this. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he, by his Spirit, has promised me eternal life, and he makes me willing and ready from now on to live for him. If you have been redeemed by Christ, you'll be resurrected a future hope with Jesus Christ is promised. If not, I would just beg you to think this stuff out, test it, and when Jesus Christ passes your test, do what I did a long time ago. The best decision I ever made. Bow to Jesus, believe on Jesus, And enjoy him forever. Forever. You're going to get to go home, Lord willing. 
And you're going to have a really great Easter dinner. And I've been praying all week that you will. But it's going to have to end. Family has to go back. We have to go back to our routines. And it'll kind of be a bummer. But in heaven, that whole banquet thing (laughs) is never going to end. And you won't have to clean up. All because Jesus came into this world, did exactly what his father said, did exactly what you and I could never do, die, and then God raised him from the dead. God bless you. Let's pray together as we dismiss. God and Father, thank you for your great love through Jesus Christ. May the risen Christ be in our hearts May he give us life and joy and peace and needed hope. May you bless us, Father, with your peace today. And to these people before me, may the risen Christ fill them with all that they need and more besides. And may their Easter celebrations be wonderful. And may salvation and glory and honor and power forever belong to you, Father. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.